Well, we get to turn in our Bibles to the book of Daniel. We are in Daniel chapter 8 and so much to cover here and I will covet your prayers as we try to uh, work our way through this chapter. So many things going on and this is not an easy chapter at all and uh, it is actually a welcome back to the study of Daniel, Daniel chapter 8. In fact, it's almost as if we'll finish this chapter with some more questions than answers There are parts of this chapter fulfilled already historically. There are other parts that are attributed to historical figures. And then there are still others that are mysterious and has not been given an answer to. In fact, at the end of the prophecy, when uh, Gabriel is explaining the revelation, um, uh, he says, seal up and don't give an answer, basically. Seal up the revelation. It's like, well, Gabriel... You're not helping us out here. Uh, We need those answers, especially if we have to preach the chapter. So anyways, I'm just going to take you as far as the Bible goes and leave the divine mysteries exactly where God wants to leave those mysteries. This is a good instruction. And for the most part, evangelicals have been in agreement as to the account here. The accounts reflect two historical figures that are types of the Antichrist. They are types, and as we unpack this, we're going to see. And so while indeed Daniel chapter 8 is about a couple of individuals as their rise to power and their character and the qualities of these individuals that will indeed reflect the quality of the Antichrist, and we can see connections to the Antichrist in these historical characters, and we can see their their the practice of these men and what it would look like ultimately in the final Antichrist. There's a greater theme about this chapter that is on, underneath it all. And that greater theme is the suffering of Israel, the intense suffering that they were going to face. And historically, they have faced intense suffering, as we'll see in these chap- this chapter but ultimately anticipating the greatest suffering in the end times to come. But as I said, this passage, Daniel 8, is the reflection of the spirit of the Antichrist, a kind of type of the Antichrist to come. It's rather interesting, as you continue through the New Testament and you understood the message of the New Testament, John warned us that Antichrist was coming. The spirit of the Antichrist have come. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18, John says this, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. That statement, many Antichrists have arisen, is helpful for us because it helps us understand the spirit of the Antichrist revealed in Daniel chapter 8. There have been historical figures, many have come, but there is one coming. First John chapter 2, verse 22, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Historically, there has been, again, those who have rejected God and stood up against God, those who have opposed, and they have all come in the same way. They have come in the spirit of the Antichrist. They have been opposed to God, they have been opposed to God's people, and they demonstrated a lot of the qualities that we're going to see unfolded here in Daniel chapter 8. There, are, there is for the church an anticipation of a coming world ruler who is going to oppose God and oppose the ways of God. He is going to uh, undo God's system. He is known in the New Testament by many names, one of which is Antichrist. Another is the man of lawlessness, as Second Thessalonians 2 and verse 3 calls him. Paul calls him the man of lawlessness. He is the one who is opposed to God. He is the one who is, again, against God's practices and designs, and he is going to seek to undo all that God has done. And so 
uh, even Jesus anticipates still this coming event of this Antichrist coming who's going to bring the abomination of desolation that we're going to see in the next chapter, Daniel chapter 9. So we have to wait till next week. But here, Jesus anticipates this in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 15 when he tells his audience this, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. He says, you, you're looking for this. You are waiting for this. Jesus tells, uh, tells his audience, we are waiting for the fulfillment of the events in Daniel's prophecy of this one who is going to come and bring a desolation. Paul says we are waiting for the revelation of the man of lawlessness who is going to be revealed and he is going to lead into the apostasy. John has said we are waiting for the Antichrist. Many Antichrists have come, but we're waiting ultimately for this Antichrist. Nonetheless, there have been historical figures that have reflected some of the same qualities of this future Antichrist. Many have come to Daniel chapter 8 and seen the fulfillment of the events of Daniel chapter 8 and have made the conclusion the Antichrist has already come. And we'll see them in the historical figures brought out here. But they have said he's already come because they have fulfilled the events here in Daniel chapter 8. And I would admit that indeed there have been historical figures that have fulfilled Daniel chapter 8. And Daniel chapter 8 was about those historical figures. But Daniel chapter 8 is only pointing to a type of Antichrist, not the Antichrist. So we could even say like this. What we see in Daniel chapter 8 is the very spirit of the Antichrist. We see the character that he is going to reflect. We see how he is going to come, but, but also... The character has been reflected in various individuals historically. And ultimately, the Antichrist has one aim, and his aim is to destroy God's people, to bring an end. That's why, after all, the scriptures talk about the tribulation as being limited. Jesus said if it wasn't limited, that all of God's people would be destroyed. It was limited for a purpose, so God put a specific time limit on that Revelation on that time period. So I believe that what we see here in Daniel 8, while it is true that it is pointing to a type of Antichrist, it is not the Antichrist. And we know that, again, because of the New Testament revelation, that Jesus says he's still coming. Paul says he's still coming. John says he's still coming. So if Jesus, Paul, and John says we're still waiting for this time. I think that's a pretty good indication. These events are only, though clearly revealed here in Daniel 8 of what is to come, those are just types of this future Antichrist who we're going to see. So all that's set up. Let's begin to look at this chapter. Daniel 8, let's look at verses 1 through 14 to start. Here's what Daniel writes. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king... A vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Ulai Canal. Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram with, which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, and with the longer one coming up last. And I saw the ram butting towards westward and northward and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue him, a rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased and magnified himself. And while I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came up to the ram, and had the two which had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. And I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns. And the ram had no strength to withstand him, 
So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the beautiful land. It grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the hosts and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. And it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of transgressions, a transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply? And while the transgression causes horror, so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled. And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. This is the vision that Daniel received, and indeed you understand my suffering throughout the week. (laughs) But this has been a good study this week as we see this vision here, this at time when Daniel received this, he received it in 551 B.C. He's under, again, as he says, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. This is the third year now. In chapter 7, verse 1, is the first year of Belshazzar's rule. This is now the third year of Belshazzar's rule, thus 551. Daniel is about 70 years old at this time. So now by this point in Daniel's prophecy, this is a flashback to that event. He receives this vision, and in this vision, he sees himself in a city, in the city of Susa, a city that is fortified. That's the idea of a citadel. It is a fortified city. That's where he has himself placed. In Daniel's day, this city, the city of Susa, wasn't much of a city. In fact, it, had very, uh, very, it was very small and insignificant. It had a history, a significant history, but by this point it was insignificant. It was... Uh, well, to the eastern part of the Babylon Empire. It was about 250 miles east of Babylon and 150 miles north of the Persian Gulf and somewhere in Iran today. And in Daniel's time, in fact, after Daniel's time, much later, this city was going to rise to prominence. In fact, Darius the Great in his day made this city the capital of the Persian Empire. So at this time, when Daniel sees this vision and he is looking ahead and seeing himself in this city, he is looking ahead to the point of the Persian Empire at its greater strength. He's seeing off into the vision of this great city. And on top of it, it says there, back in verse 2, that he himself was standing there alongside the Uli Canal. There was a man-made canal in that area that brought water to that area. So again, there is great precision in the writing of this account. And Daniel sees in this vision himself in this city, the city which used to have prominence, now was made lowly, which again in the future was going to rise to prominence. He sees himself in the middle of this city, and he sees the vision, the first vision of the ram with two horns. And notice the description of these two horns. Both of them were long, but one was longer than the other, and the longer one came up later. We know later in the interpretation and down in verse 20 where you're told what this ram is. Notice in verse 20, the ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. This is the kings of Medo-Persia. These two horns, again, you have the Medes and the Persians, are 
demonstrated here in this ram. The Medes and the Persians had defeated the Babylonians and came to power in 539 B.C. And they endured and reigned for 200 years. And the Medes and the Persians came to power, and as the, they came to power, the, the Persians at initially were the insignificant party. They grew in power. Initially, with the Medes were the powerful ones, and the Persians rose. And particularly, Cyrus, the great Persian king, was the one who gained control and gained strength. So certainly by this time, when Daniel is seeing this, he is anticipating what is to come in the very near future, the rise of the power of the Medes and the Persians. And they came, as the text says, it came and it was heading eastward and, or is heading westward and northward and southward. In every direction, it was moving forth and conquering. They were conquering every land. So they conquered the lands of Babylon, Syria, Asia Minor to the west, Armenia, uh, all the way to the Caspian Sea and to the north. They conquered Egypt and Ethiopia to the south. They went in every direction conquering. It says again there in verse 4, Ram was budding in all these directions, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there any one who could rescue from his power, but he did as he pleased and magnified himself. This kingdom, the Medes and the Persians conquered, Cyrus and his power, the primary leader, taking over, and none could thwart him. No one could resist his, his power. Said during that time, the Medes and the Persians had an army of over two million soldiers, and he marched against his enemies, and he moved with a kind of methodical power around. It took a long time to conquer, but as he was moving around, he conquered. But here, then, in verses 5 through 8, described again another kingdom that came up. This next vision here that Daniel describes as male goats, as he goats. It's described in verse 21 as the shaggy goat representing the kingdom of Greece. This shaggy goat came and this king, kingdom came and there's some unique aspects about this particular kingdom. It came again from verse 5, from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. The idea is it came with swiftness. It moved rapidly. This is Greece. Greece, again, this is the same nation represented by the bronze legs and the statue in Daniel chapter 2. And the same nation represented by the leopard with wings in Daniel chapter 7. The Greeks had conquered the Medes and the Persians in 331 B.C. and ruled until 146 B.C. And Daniel says again that this, this shaggy goat had a large horn as Greece's first king. In verse 21, this, king with this, or this goat with one large horn between his eyes, that first king was Alexander the Great. Describes this conspicuous horn Alexander the Great, the mighty king. Again, history tells us that this king, Alexander the Great, conquered swiftly. He moved throughout the lands rapidly. At the age of 21, he took over as the commander of the Greek forces. And by the time he died 12 years later, he had conquered the whole known world. Every land that was available, he had conquered. In fact, history records that he had wept at one point because there were no other lands to conquer. He came with great force, came with great power, great swiftness. While the Medes and the Persians had conquered their territories over time, Alexander conquered quickly. And named, of course, his, his particular angst against the Medes and the Persians so the text indicated that this shaggy ram came with great anger against the goats. He was raging at him, 
warring at him particularly. He came with great wrath. He came, uh, again, the word there, wrath or anger. He, had, he, was, he was enraged, verse 7. It says, I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns. There was an intense hatred for, the, for Greece, for Alexander the Great against the Medes and the Persians. And that's exactly what is described in history. It's described in history that Alexander's army was driven by an infuriated strength, a kind of anger. In fact, in one particular event, in a fight between Alexander the Great and his army against the Medes and the Persians, it occurred in 334 B.C. In that event, Alexander had 35,000 men that he was going to take his forces at the Granicus River and he was going to go up against the Medes and the Persians. The Medes and the Persians were attacking Darius's men and Darius had 100,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 horsemen. This is a 3-2-1 odds. For three of the Medes and Persians, you had one of Alexander's men. After the fight, after the battle... The Medes and the Persians had lost 20,000 men, while Alexander had only lost 100 men. That is a 200 to 1 loss. You took about a battle here, there is a, such rage on Alexander's part to conquer, such zeal, such drive to overthrow, that he took, again, a handful of men, down three to one, went in and routed the other army, of course, sending them on their way. Demonstrating exactly what the vision here indicated. He moved with swiftness, he moved with rage, he moved to conquer. No one could escape his power. Alexander had spent most of his ruling years on an unprecedented military campaign through Asia and through northwest, northeast Africa, even into the parts of Europe, conquering all the known territories. He founded cities named after him, the city of Alexandria and Egypt, of course, named after him. But of course, by the age of 30, he had created one of the largest empires in the ancient world. And again, this is before you have vehicles, before you're traveling around in you know, planes and boats and cars and tanks, etc. He is going by foot, by, by beast. He is traveling around through all this land. He wept again in his 20s because he did not have the other lands to conquer. But even then, at the height of his power, verse 8 then says, Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. But as soon as he was magnified, or as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. So even at his height of his power, as he raised up, as he took his his might, and he demonstrated his great might, and he magnified himself at the height of his power just as swiftly as he came into power, he was cut off. Again, historically, we see these events carried out in Alexander the Great. Alexander, when he passed away, had no heir. His son Hercules was murdered he had another son, Alexander Jr., born after his death, and he was put to death at the age of 13 in about 310 B.C. He had no heirs to take over the thrones, so instead, a series of commanders were given to take over the land and was divided into four parts. Even though there were more than four commanders of his army, in fact, there was a fifth commander who tried to rise up, but he was not received. So only four commanders were given parts of the land, as the prophecy indicates here. You had Tulume, who ruled over Egypt and Palestine and Arabia. You have Seleucus, who controlled Syria and Babylon. You have Cassander, who ruled over Macedonia and Greece. And then you have Lysimachus, who ruled over uh, Asia Minor to the north. These three generals took over for Alexander the Great, and they ruled during that time. 
Now it's interesting, out of this, this is exactly how history unfolded. Alexander came, set up this kingdom, he passed away, it was handed over to the four kings, four other rulers, these four horns took over, but then verse 9 comes in. And out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great from the south. So out of these four kings that were set up after Alexander, another arose. One who arose up and was a small horn that grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, towards the beautiful land. And it grew up and it caused great division. Jump down to verse 22 of Daniel 8 says the broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which arise from this from his nation although not with his power there's something about these four that came they didn't come with the same power power as Alexander the Great they came in power they came to rule but they didn't come with the same power they ruled and They ruled in that time for a period of time until another came after them. And history tells us about this other figure, this fifth horn, I guess, this another one that comes. It comes in this, as verse 9 indicates, it comes forth um, from them because out of one of them comes forth this rather small horn. An individual who is going to come up and demonstrate certain qualities. Notice the qualities he's going to demonstrate from verses 10 to 14. He's going to grow up to the host of heaven and cause some of the hosts and some of the stars to fall to the earth and trample them to the ground. He is going to magnify himself and uh, itself to be equal with the commander of the host. And he's going to remove the regular sacrifice from him. And the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of the transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice. And it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. It's going to be a, an uprising. And he's going to bring again great with him great opposition to God and God's forces. Now, let's unpack this, what it means. What does it mean back in verse 10? He grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the hosts and some of the stars to fall to the ground. Who is this referring to? I believe that he is referring here to the Jewish people. He's referring to those who are, uh, again, who are the Jews. He is, and later in Daniel's prophecy, Daniel describes the Jews as stars. No, no, uh, notice uh, Daniel chapter 12 and verse 3. This is brought out. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 3. Those who have insight shall, bro- shall shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. It's describing the righteous people of God reflecting like lights in heaven, like stars of heaven. So what is happening here is the description, I believe, back in Daniel chapter 8, is this one is going to rise up and he is going to cause a division that will even bring down some of the people of Israel. He's going to rise up to the host, he's going to rise up against God, and he's going to bring down some of God's people, some of the righteous Again, history recounts an individual like this. Historically, out of this came a man by the name of Antiochus. Antiochus Epiphanes. He gave himself the title Epiphanes. Antiochus was a ruler that came out of the Seleucus kingdom, out of the one horn. And Antiochus had come and had set himself up to take over and Antiochus set himself against the, as the text says, against the beautiful land. He set himself against the people of Israel. And he set himself up in such a way that he would become the, the great ruler, the great king. Antiochus 
he didn't have the right to the throne. In fact, it was his brother that had the right to the throne. Antiochus himself had no right to it, but he, by craftiness, took over that throne. And when he took over and was given the right to the throne, he then gave himself the title Epiphanes, which means the illustrious one. Antiochus, the illustrious one, the Epiphanes. But the people called him Antiochus Epimenes, the madman. So as he cried out Epiphanes, they said Epimenes. There's the madman, because indeed he demonstrated his madness. In fact, if you were to go into intertestamental literature and go into the book of Maccabees and read through Maccabees, one, the first Maccabees, chapter 1, you would see the accounts of Antiochus and his, his corruption. Fact in Maccabees 1, 29-32, it describes historical events of, of Antiochus coming into Israel, trying to, to create peace with Israel, promising to come in peace, only then to, to take over and to bring death. In fact, at one point, Antiochus had murdered thousands of Jews, in one case, killing 40,000 of them in just three days. He was, again, opposed to God. As verse 11 indicates, this one who had come would magnify itself to be equal with the commander of the host. The question is, what is the commander of the host? Some have thought, well, the commander of the host must be the, whole, the high priest. Now, this would be God himself. The commander of the host, he is making himself equal with God and it will go on and he will remove the regular sacrifice from him. Meaning that he was going to stop the sacrificial system in Israel. He was going to stop and corrupt the, the work in the temple. And that's exactly what happens. Tychus pronounced himself as king of kings and lord of lords. Gave, giving himself those titles. Raising himself up to that great place. Instead of having the regular sacrifices, Antiochus went out and turned the temple into a gymnasium. So that was a place of exercise, and it was a place in which athletes would come and prepare themselves for, for Greek games. Which, of course, you understand the, if you understand the Olympic events and the Greek games, you recognize that they would be doing these things naked as they were preparing for their particular battles, thus completely profaning the place of worship for God. That's exactly what Antiochus did. Overturned the sacrificial system. He exalted himself to a high place. He warred against the Jewish people. He corrupted their place of worship. Verse 12, And on account of the transgression, the host will be given over to the horn. So it is, again, on the account of the people's rebellion, the account of the people's uh, sin, there Antiochus is able to rule. Along with the regular sacrifice, it will be flung to the ground. It will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Tychicus regularly sought to undo all of God's design. He opposed God and he opposed God's way. In fact, 1 Maccabees chapter 1, verse 56 to 57 says this. He says, In this time, the books of the law which they found, they tore to pieces and burned them with fire. Where the book of the covenant was found in the possession of anyone, if anyone adhered to the law, the decree of the king condemned him to death. The satanically inspired king was endeavoring to rid the world of the word of God as tyrants have attempted to do many times since. It's described in Maccabees. He was opposed. And notice again, there's this significant uh, detail. It says in verse 14, he said to me, when asked how long is this horror going to last, how long are they going to go about this, said to him, it will last for 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the holy place will be properly restored. This is a different timeline than that of the of the Antichrist who's going to come and operate for three and a half years. That's 1,260 days, a time, uh, times and half a time. For 42 months, he will cause Israel to suffer. As Daniel 7.25 describes, 
This is 2,300 evenings and mornings that he is going to give a place, time to rule. This could mean literally 2,300 days or the morning and evening each being separate times. So 1,150 days, a morning and an evening equaling again 2,300 events. And there are arguments on either side for it there to uh, what would be possible. What we don't know is the beginning part. We certainly know the end. We know exactly when the end has taken place because of the Maccabean revolt. Because the Maccabean revolt came and they overthrew Antiochus. And when Antiochus was overthrown in December 25th, 164 B.C., they reestablished the day of Hanukkah, which is known as the day of dedication. The day that Antiochus was overthrown and Israel was taken back. Well, he actually wasn't actually overthrown at that point. They took back Jerusalem. They conquered the temple, took back possession of it, and restored order in Jerusalem. On that day, December 25th, 164 B.C., that was the day of dedication. Israel taken back its holy temple. And then you could trace back 2,300 days from that, or you can go back uh, 1,150 days. One of those two periods of time, the significant event came that Antiochus rose up. Now, let's just kind of conclude here by the final details that the angel gives. Some of the, obviously, much of the details I've given you have come from the angel's interpretation. Notice the, from verse 15 and following what is stated there. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of Uli, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So he came near to me where I was standing, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. So we'll stop right there for a moment. So, of course, Daniel is in the exact same spot that all of us are in. What in the world does this mean? As he's in this vision, and he hears a voice in this vision. It's likely a, a voice of the Son of God, pre-incarnate, calling out to him. Again, likely, we don't know exactly. But he says to Gabriel, Gabriel, you're the one you're going to give explanation to this vision. And that's exactly what Gabriel's purpose has been. Gabriel has been the announcer. Throughout Scripture, Gabriel is the one who gives announcement to God's activities. He's the one who came to Mary to tell Mary what was taking place. He came to Joseph. Here he is coming to Daniel to explain to Daniel what is taking place. And he's to give understanding. And in particular, verse 17, he says there, Gabriel speaks, he says, Son of man, understand the vision pertains to the time of the end. So it's important to understand that as we're working through these details, these details do relate to the end event. Even if there's a historical fulfillment, there is a type here that's being revealed. This type is reflecting end events to come. Now it goes on in verse 18. Now, while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand upright. Now, I appreciate that because I believe that that is the best response to angelic uh, forces speaking to you. You just pass out. Overwhelmed by the significance of the event, he, he faints, he passes out, he falls to the ground. Uh, he says it in a very gentle way, my face was to the ground, he was in a deep sleep. Yeah, you passed out and fell face first, is ultimately what the YouTube video would have demonstrated in the moment. And he said, verse 19, as he awoke and was aroused by Gabriel, he said to me, Behold, I am going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. 
Again, emphatically demonstrating that these things are heading towards the end. These are heading to the end events. He goes on and explains it then. Verse 20, The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of the Media and Persia. And again, as we begin to look at these details and we see the events, we can unfold and see the historical fulfillment of this. So there is, again, a historical fulfillment in these particular events, in individuals, in nations. But there is more to it that is ultimately pointing to the end events. And that isn't to say that there is two meanings to this. That is simply to say what God demonstrates here is there is a type that's going to take place in Israel's history that is going to reflect what is happening at the end. There's a type. And what he unfolds, of course, we saw verse 20, the rise of a particular nation, the rise of the Medes and the Persia, just as it happened, the rise of uh, the Cyrus. Then you saw, verse 21, the shaggy goat representing the kingdom of Greece and the large horn between his eyes is the first king. So the rise of Alexander the Great, you see the separation and the breaking off of that particular kingdom. Let's zoom our focus in in verse 23 and notice this latter ruler and the explanation of the later ruler from verse 23 through 26. It says this, In the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise insolent and skilled in intrigue. This one who is going to rise and he's going to come with insolence and be skilled with intrigue. That means that when he rises with insolence, means he's going to rise with a hard face, a kind of bold face. He's going to be hard as nails. He's going to come resistant, kind of an angry, merciless, bitter force. And as the text says there, he's going to be skilled with intrigue. That is, that he's going to have great intelligence be persuasive, filled with deceit, able to mislead, and filled with, again, corruption. This is all a type of the Antichrist. Verse 24, His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. And he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He is going to be mighty. Again, At that time, Tychus, during this time, demonstrated a great authority, great power. But this one who's coming, this horn, is going to have a mighty power, possibly even a satanically energized power. It's going to come and, as the text there indicates, destroy to an extraordinary degree. It's going to bring great death. All that God established, all that God set up, he is going to seek to undo and again, this, could, this has been historically fulfilled in Antiochus who warred against God and destroyed God's people, literally set himself up against the saints of God and sought to put them all to death. He sought to destroy them, even destroying their temple and their place of worship, bringing great destruction wherever he came. Came again with power. There's something about verse 24 indicating he will be mighty, but not with by his own power. Go down to verse 25. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. And he will magnify himself in his heart and he will destroy many while they are at ease. And he will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. Again, historically, we can go through and see that this was a fulfillment in Antiochus who set himself up as a great leader, who set himself up with great authority, magnifying himself even above God, seeking to undo all of God's ordinances, all of God's festivals, all of God's uh, work, magnifying himself and calling himself God. In fact, it has been found that during that time, that there are coins, engraved on those coins are this word, Theos Epiphanes. God the illustrious, reflecting of, with Alexander the, or Antiochus' image. 
So there are images where he was putting himself up as God and making that the currency during that time. All of this, again, as he even says there, he's opposed to the prince of princes, namely God himself, sets himself against God. So all of this pointing to this great ruler to come. Verse 26, the vision of the evenings and the mornings which has been told is true. Here's a key. But keep the vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. So I think here's what is demonstrated in this marvelous text. These descriptions of these two creatures, the ram and the goat, and the various authorities that came out of them, are types of the Antichrist to come. They were fulfilled in historical figures demonstrating historically Israel's suffering, demonstrating the, the character that ultimately will be reflected in the final Antichrist. These characters demonstrated great authority, demonstrated rule, they were power. They're in places of, like polit, uh, politicians and kings and rulers. And when they came and took over that place of rule. They used that rule for their own advantage. They exalted themselves in a mighty way. They demonstrated great hubris. In the demonstration exalting of themselves, they used their position of power to destroy God's people and destroy God's ways. Operated, as the text indicates there, with great cunning, great intrigue, great mystery. They operated in lies and deceit, and they led towards murderous events. And while these events were fulfilled in historical figures, there is, as, an, as the angel Gabriel points out to, this is what points to the end. There's an appointed time. This is pointing to an end event, a kind of ruler that is going to come with an authority that is going to be aimed against God and God's people. Now here's the tying thread that takes it from Israel to the end event, and it is the continued suffering of God's people, particularly Israel. They are the target of the wrath of that Antichrist. Pre-Antichrist here in, in Daniel's time, just the hostile religious leaders, hostile political authorities. In the end time, it's going to be an Antichrist, one who is opposed to God, the one who is opposed to God's ways and against God's people. In particular, I think it is rather interesting to note here the end of verse 26, when they, Gabriel even gives the vision, I think that's the implication there, when he says, which has been told, or the vision of the evenings and mornings which has been told is true. Meaning, I believe that Gabriel explained to Daniel exactly what it was that this meant, this vision of the mornings and the evenings, but he then told Daniel, don't write it down. Just keep it to yourself. That is for those later on. Basically, those who live through the particular event are going to understand plainly what it means. And I think it is waiting to, at a time to come. I love Daniel's response to all this. Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. And then I got up again and carried on the king's business. But I was astounded at the vision. And there was none to explain it. There is a hostile of forces, types of Antichrist. There is the spirit of the Antichrist is in the world, as John says. It's using John's language. The spirit of the Antichrist is here. There have been historical figures that have fulfilled these things, but there is still yet one to come who is going to manifest all of these things collectively. It's going to be a world ruler going to move with swiftness, going to start out small and rise up to power. He's going to be opposed to God's people. He's going to be opposed to God himself. He is going to overthrow the, the work of God here on earth. He's going to lead to great bloodshed. And ultimately, his end is going to come swiftly, as he says at the end of verse 25, but he will be broken without human agency. It's said of Antiochus that he died without human agency and that he died in Tabal in 163 B.C. from a disease of the bowels. He had an illness that took him down. He didn't die from the hands of men. He died from the hands of a disease. 
Similar fashion, the Antichrist is going to be broken without human agency when Christ comes and slays the wicked with the very breath of his mouth, as described in Revelation 19, 19 and 20. So is this, again, a question for us at hand? Is Daniel 8 speaking of the future Antichrist? To some degree, yes, because it's a type. And it's speaking of a particular historical figure, of historical figures that came out. And what we can learn from all of this is, again, this helps give us insight into this coming authority that is going to be opposed to the things of God. As we continue through Daniel's prophecy, we will see this some more next week when we come back into chapter 9. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for the riches here and just the depths of uh, details Certainly we, re- we understand that as you lay out a truth and you apply that truth, that that principle of that truth also applies in many applications. So that there is one meaning, the spirit of an antichrist is opposed to you, but many applications of that one who rose up, just as the Apostle John indicated, there be one who is opposed to God, who denies the Father and the Son. This is the Antichrist. And many have come, and many are opposed, and many are resisting. We are certainly anticipating that one time when the full fulfillment of every one of these principles will come display in one individual who will set themselves against you. And when this occurs, we are not terrified, we are not led astray, we are not led into worry, for we understand all of this is exactly as you had declared. So you accomplish your good purposes. We pray as we continue to study through Daniel's prophecy that we would gain wisdom and insight and understanding so as not to be unsettled in our heart, for we know in the time of the end that there will be many signs and wonders, if possible, even to mislead the elect. But your people who know your word will be eternally secured and protected, and we anticipate the riches of your of your work. Much more, Father, we rejoice knowing that your good purposes, that you have a particular plan for your people. We have a plan for the church, and you have a plan for Israel, and you will f- unfold your perfect plan according to your will, and we are comforted by what your scriptures reveal. So as we continue to study through Daniel's prophecy, give us insight and understanding so that our hearts will be prepared. It's in your blessed name we pray. Amen.